0: Hello, and I would like to welcome our listeners to another edition of the Crossroads Podcast. I'm Matt O'Brien, reporter, news editor for Information News North American Coverage. I'll be your host today. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to introduce our guest today. Someone's gonna give us his view on the broadband infrastructure landscape. I have with me a partner on the TMT team at Searchlight Capital Partners and former Federal Communications Commission chairman, Ajit Pai.
1: Ajit, welcome. Hey, it's great to be with you, Matt. Thanks for making the time. Thank you for agreeing to
0: talk with me today. So most of us saw back in April uh, the Searchlight announcement that, that you were joining the firm. I thought we would start off with you telling the listeners what you've been working on and, you know, have your impressions of the market changed since joining Searchlight?
1: Well, first of all, uh, thanks again, Matt, for taking the time. I've really appreciated the work that you and Information News have done over the years to help educate those of us in this space and uh, look forward to a great conversation today. Uh, Speaking of uh, Searchlight, one of the things that intrigued me uh, after I left the FCC and as I started exploring my different options was that Searchlight was... Composed of a really extraordinary group of individuals. Over a decade, they've built a private equity platform that has really been successful in terms of uh, assets under management or some of the acquisitions and deals they've done. And uh, certainly uh, the culture they've built over that decade has been one that's very collaborative and teamwork oriented. And I, all of those things have been confirmed in my couple of months uh, at the firm. I've had the chance to work on a couple of different transactions, uh, most notably All Points Broadband in the state of Virginia and uh, uh there too it's it's been exciting to uh, get under the hood so to speak of uh, some of these innovative businesses understand what makes them tick where value might be added and then try to figure out a way where we can add value and i've i've really been uh, excited at the opportunity and also it's been an education for me I don't have a traditional a financial background of course but it's been great uh, getting to learn obviously apply the traditional tools of uh, finance to some of these great opportunities out there in the infrastructure space.
0: Great. The way I want to start this conversation is on mergers and acquisitions activity and where you see that going. For me, you know, I I saw, so I've been covering the telecom sector since roughly 2018. Uh, I saw a lot of activity through that infrastructure lens in, in 2019 and then the second half of 2020 obviously the first half was uh, we could all agree was a bit challenging um, the first half of this year you know a lot of activity still but then you know recently it feels like things have have cooled off a little bit again just you know through uh, from the infrastructure perspective right so will if it's if that's a fact will uh, lull in activity continue and set a new range in trading activity
1: or do you see something else it's a very good question. So I think uh, in years past, when we talked about M&A, we might have had in mind straightforward acquisition with not no material changes in the businesses being acquired. But now, I'm not sure about the overall volume, but I can not say that the tenor of these investments has seemed to have changed. Uh, for example, you see a lot of entities, either private equity companies or strategics, uh, acquiring some of these uh, telecom companies and then pouring in capital in order to upgrade infrastructure. And so uh, I think the nature of the acquisitions has certainly changed uh, compared to even a few years ago. And I think the COVID pandemic, uh, candidly, has probably driven some of that. I think COVID, at least here in the United States and likely around the world, has underscored the importance of broadband in the lives of consumers everywhere, you know, to be able to work from home, for your kids to be able to do remote learning, for you to have a remote visit with your doctor, uh, even for farmers, for example, to be able to do precision agriculture, all those other kinds of things, you need a broadband connection. And so I think now both investment firms and strategics are recognizing that there's a great opportunity here, even if the uh, you know, the companies themselves that are being acquired don't have fiber in for example, if they have some sort of infrastructure that can be leveraged, You increase the amount of capital expenditures pouring into the upgrades, and hey, you've got a pretty good uh, investment opportunity there. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I would defer to you in terms of the absolute level, but I would say that the nature of those investments has certainly changed over time.
0: Yeah, gotcha. You know, and on that note, uh, just let's dive in just a, a little bit deeper. Uh, one of the things people are talking about, you go to these conferences, you know, telecom conferences, communications infrastructure seminars, and sometimes a conversation comes up with the convergence between you know, your enterprise focused firms and that of residential. And, you know, think of all your uh, fiber to the home players that have popped up in the last few years or just super focused on residential. Yeah, I mean, sure, they serve. Maybe a small business here and there that make up uh, their total customer base, but they're really Uber focused on the customer, on the residential aspect, and on customer service. Um, and I, I think you know these enterprise focused carriers are, are taking notice of a lot of the success that they're having. Uh, do you see some kind of convergence between those two business miles? Because there are you know important distinctions between the two, you know, especially from a contractual basis that they have through their customers. Um, but do you see those business models uh, converging?
1: Do you see that accelerating, t- you know, taking off? What's your view on that? That's a great question. Uh, so I certainly see that uh, some of the more enterprise-focused firms are recognizing the value in residential and even more so the reverse that uh, some of the traditional residential, for example, fiber-to-the-home players, are seeing a value uh, on the enterprise side. And so to the extent that they're delivering, for example, fiber-to-the-home to every home or residence in a jurisdiction, to the extent that certain businesses are on the way, I mean, you see a great revenue opportunity there to leverage an already existing network, both middle mile and last mile, to be able to capture some of that value. I also think that in the time to come, you know, we're obviously in the early stages of the next wireless revolution 5G, uh, but 5G is going to require much deeper fiber penetration. Uh, in, in, according to, In addition to that, you're going to need a lot more small cells operating at lower power, but those small cells will also have to be connected with fiber. And so I actually think there's going to be a convergence with the residential and enterprise fiber providers with respect to 5G, because the same fiber that's being used in a neighborhood could be used uh, to leverage a 5G network. So um, I do think that in the time to come, we'll see fiber as uh, one of those technologies that unites both the enterprise and the residential sides. So let's
0: dive into particulars of of a uh, greenfield activity. You know, while there might have been a lull in in M and A, or maybe the the sector is just digesting uh, some of that activity, it certainly continued at a frenzy pace in, in greenfield. You know, a lot of public infrastructure procurement seem to have been put on pause. In in what information covers, whether it be a core core plus assets, I think they're all waiting to see what comes out of the infrastructure bill, but. You know, when I'm when I'm looking every day, it feels like there's some kind of new procurement, public procurement going on uh, where a municipality, a state, they're looking for some kind of uh, network build out, whether it's fiber, of the home or maybe a middle mile um, every day. We're, we're, we're seeing something new. Um, so what do you see, given all this activity, what do you see as opportunities for infra funds and other investors in, in the greenfield space?
1: Uh, that's a $64,000 question uh, these days. Uh, there are so many tailwinds for these types of greenfield bills. And uh, you, we track the same news that you're tracking. And it's uh, it's incredible. And I think what it speaks to is the fact that across the country, at all levels of government, national, state, local, and even tribal, uh, there is a dissatisfaction with the fact that the digital divide has persisted for so long. And you know, certainly when I ran the FCC, one of our goals was to allocate public resources to the maximum extent feasible to target those unserved areas. And in addition, to modernize our regulatory framework in order to make it easier to build in some of these areas that didn't have broadband. And you know, some of the more arcane regulatory reforms that the average person might not know about, but that are really critical to building a broadband network. Uh, for example, OneTouch Make Ready to make it cheaper and quicker to gain access to utility poles for competitive fiber providers, or making it easier for telephone companies to migrate some of their infrastructure from copper to fiber. Um, and now I think that's only continued ever since I left the FCC. You see now these massive funding streams. The American Rescue Plan, for example, is devoting billions of dollars to states, and uniquely now, states are taking some of that funding and making it specifically available for broadband deployment. The broadband infrastructure framework, which you talked about, I mean, my gosh, if you told me back in 2017 when I gave a speech as FCC chairman urging Congress to allocate significant funds for broadband as part of an infrastructure plan, if you told me that you'd get bipartisan uh, agreement on the $65 billion, at least $40 billion of which would be for broadband deployment, I would have been doing cartwheels. And so I think it suggests that there's now a recognition in Washington that this is really important. And I think why that's important for Greenfield in particular is that here in the United States, just as around the world, there have always been certain areas where established providers don't see a business case for deployment. It might be that the populations in those areas are relatively sparse it might also be that those areas have relatively lower incomes it could also be topographical you know, there might be mountains for example or i've been to parts of alaska that are in quick that are in permafrost so you can't lay a fiber line and so i think one of the great things about these funding streams coming from washington in the states is they finally give uplift to some of the infrastructure funds some of the telecom providers that are finally finding that the math works in some of these areas and uh, so I, I'm really optimistic about uh, what that will mean for infrastructure going forward. And uh, we'll simply point out as well that you know, the consumer demand is clearly there. I mean, I've traveled to 49 states and the territories of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands over the last several years. And I can tell you that those consumers who don't have broadband, it's not because they don't want it. They really do. And they finally see an opportunity now to get on the right side of the digital divide. So yeah, in addition to the business side of things, which, of course, is important as we've discussed. And so I think in addition to this. Uh, being good as a business opportunity, which is, of course, uh, the subject of our conversation, there's a tremendous social benefit here. I think coming out of COVID-19, I think I'm hard-pressed to think of a better example of an ESG-related benefit than bringing people who were for too long on the wrong side of the digital divide into the digital era. And so I think there's a great opportunity here for not just individual consumers to be better off, but for communities and national economies to be stronger. Yeah. Gotcha. Great point.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. When localities have decided to procure a broadband project as a publicly financed municipal network, uh, something from more of my colleagues at Detwire Municipals, do you think that, that when a when municipality or in a state decides to procure a network that way, all using all public funds and it'll be publicly owned, government owned, Do you think that that caps private investor opportunities, you know, it seems to be a raging debate right now, right, between municipal owned or P3 or completely privately owned in finance,
1: or if it's all publicly owned, is there still room for, for such projects where investors can participate? Well, I think the way I would answer that is that I certainly understand the motivation underlying the push for municipal broadband or for wholly owned government uh, operated uh, networks. And you know, I think part of the problem is, however, that then you do end up crowding out some of the private investment that would be is very eager to build and operate some of these broadband networks. And so I think the most effective model has been one akin to what Virginia has done, the state of Virginia. So there, for example, they've established a framework, not just devoting state funds through the American Rescue Plan and on its own for broadband deployment, but they've also changed the law to allow utilities, electric utilities, to build middle mile fiber and to essentially amortize the cost of that build over the rate base. And in addition to that, they've encouraged electric utilities and Internet service providers to work together. And so what we see coming together in the state of Virginia is a very unique public-private partnership model in which you have everybody aligned. State government officials, for example, electric utilities, Internet service providers, and in the case of Searchlight and All Points, a private capital provider. And so all of us are working together together to solve that problem of how do we get universal service in areas that just don't have broadband right now? We think that's a much more effective model. The the track record for municipal broadband has been a little bit spotty. I've visited some great um, municipal broadband projects, for example, in Lorenz, Iowa, a very small town where no provider was willing to build. Uh, But there've also been stories, for example, like Provo, Utah, where the city spent tens of millions of dollars on a broadband network and ended up selling it to Google for $1. And so I think at the end of the day, what we want to do is to make sure that you know, we maximize the benefit to those tech consumers and to, as taxpayers and as consumers uh, for these broadband networks. And I think the prob- public-private partnership model is a better way to achieve that worthy goal uh, than wholly government-owned and operated networks.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. It's interesting to see how these different actors are, are partnering up. And that's a good point you make about partnering with the electric co-ops. We're certainly seeing a lot of that. Given your your background in government, helming the FCC and working around Washington, I have to ask you some policy oriented questions. What broadband elements should the current Congress and White House add to the infrastructure bill that we're all on the edge of our seats watching, waiting with bated breath? Uh, if you were still part of of you know the DC machinery, what what would you would like to see added to that bill? What would you push for?
1: Well, that's uh, that's a good question. So, yeah, uh, you know, obviously, uh, now that I'm out of the game, so to speak, I have a little more freedom to think <laughs> broadly and speak broadly about what I would put into it. Uh, you know, were I still in office, I would say, of course, uh, I defer to Congress and whatever they choose to do is what they choose to do, and we'll dutifully administer it. But yeah, you know, I do think that the broad contours of it have to be very thoughtfully uh, structured. And so, for example, my own preference would be. That for Congress to allocate funding through the FCC, which has existing mechanisms for distributing that funding as opposed to another government agency, you know, either the Department of Commerce or Department of Agriculture or some other federal agency. You know, the FCC is the nation's premier communications agency, it's been administering the Universal Service Fund for many years. And I would have some concern about pouring tens of billions of dollars into a Department of Commerce agency, for example, that doesn't have broad experience distributing funding, has never held a spectrum auction or a universal service fund auction or other type of auction market mechanism for distributing funding. Um, and also, you know, the FCC knows all of these players in the various states. It's also developing the granular maps, the broadband maps that will be necessary for determining which areas are served and unserved or underserved. And so that's point number one. Point number two is that uh, I would encourage uh, Congress to think about giving the FCC flexibility. In terms of structuring uh, the distribution of this funding, uh, you know, it could be grants, it could be loans, it could be just a straightforward you know, auction, as the USF funds have traditionally been. But you give the expert agency the ability uh, to tweak these uh, distribution mechanisms according to the necessities of the time. And the final thing is, I would ensure that there's accountability on the back end. You know, it was very important to me when I ran the FCC to make sure that we made clear to all the recipients of this funding. Look, we're not simply cutting a check and saying, you know, Vaya con Dios, we want you to use the scarce taxpayer funding for the benefit of American consumers. And you know, whether it's enmeshed uh, specifically within the law or whether the Congress simply says to the FCC, you shall consider, you shall establish regulations on accountability, you know, that would be very important as well. Um, and so I think those are some of the broad outlines. In terms of the funding amount, Uh, Yeah, I certainly think that uh, that seems to be a number that I've heard uh, in terms of attacking the unserved part of the country. And that's probably the last point I would raise is that the last thing we want to do uh, through these government mechanisms uh, like the uh, infrastructure program is to, number one, either target areas that already have service and or, number two, fund overbuilding of privately built and operated networks. I mean, to the extent that somebody already has broadband from a private provider, the last thing the government should be doing is, I think, coming over the top and spending taxpayer funds over building that network. So I would target the unserved part of the country, which tends to be underserved, if not unserved completely. And these areas are going to be very, very difficult to connect otherwise in the years to come. So those are just a few of the things I would think about. And I'm quite sure that these are topics that are being debated hotly right now in the halls of the United States Senate.
0: Right. Yeah, I bet. Let me ask you this. How do you see the current thinking at the FCC impacting broadband infra activity?
1: Yeah, I think broadly speaking, we're all on the same. They were all on the same page uh, when I was running the agency and they continue to be. I think that people recognize that all of these different programs the FCC runs are important. The universal service one is one of them, but even some of the other ones uh, that, you know, in terms of, Uh, making sure that broadband was more available. You know, One Touch Make Ready, which I mentioned earlier, I mean, that was a unanimous decision, which was a pretty big deal, uh, you know, given the political environment in Washington. Some of the other things, encouraging the migration from copper to fiber, these are things that people tend to agree on. So going forward, I would expect uh, the FCC to be focused very much on those types of consensus-based policies. Now, there are going to be areas where, you know, obviously people differ. Uh, This is uh, you know very you know, some of these issues are very challenging uh, politically, but nonetheless, I think on in terms of the broad strokes, people are going to be on the same page. and even as I was leaving and the new administration was taking over, we saw some of that continuity in terms of some of the affordability of provisions. So, for example, I encouraged Congress in my last couple of months to extend funding for consumers who were unable to pay because of difficulties caused by the pandemic. Congress established that authority in late December, and it ended up becoming the Emergency Broadband Benefit, or EBB, um, 3 to $4 billion program that the current FCC adopted unanimously. So um, I think you know, broadband might be one of the few things in Washington <laughs> that unifies people regardless of political affiliation, and uh, I say lead into that. I hope the FCC now and going into the future will continue to focus on those types of consensus-oriented uh, uh, policies.
0: Yeah, gotcha. I have one last question. I think I'm going a little bit out of order here. I wanted to back up, but maybe going back more to the greenfield. Eh, yeah, I can see it even affecting M and A. The pandemic has obviously challenged supply chain issues and logistics. What you know, when when you look at these fiber providers and even the workforce, you know, people not returning to work. Are these presenting a challenge to various fiber operators and investors what's your what's your take on that
1: I certainly hear anecdotally and we're starting to see in terms of prices and timing uh, that there are certain supply chain issues with respect to uh, equipment and even workforce issues as you mentioned and you know with respect to the first you know certainly the what I've been hearing at least and seeing is that uh, the uh, purchase orders uh, take a lot longer to uh, to come to fruition, you might see in many cases as well that uh, uh, you might see an increased price for some of the fiber if you're not ordering at scale. And in terms of the workforce as well, you know, one of the things I noticed when I was at the FCC well before anyone heard of COVID-19 is that the work of building a fiber network, any communications network, is exceptionally difficult. You know, I've actually sat on a ditch which in the muck of Louisiana's bayous and strung fiber. I've climbed a utility pole and uh, you know, a 130-foot pole to you know, check a wireless antenna. I mean, this is really hard work. And, uh, you know, it, there are very few people who are qualified uh, to do it. And so now, of course, as you we've been discussing, there's not just a massive influx of capital and interest, but there's a massive influx of need for the people to be able to do that work. And so you know, hopefully as uh, things start to uh, open up a little bit, uh, we'll see where the Delta variant takes us. But yeah, I certainly hope that that workforce Uh, is not going to be a constraint on the building of some of these communications networks going forward. But there's no question now, we've seen activity in this space on the greenfield side that is unlike anything I've ever seen, probably since the late 90s, when we first saw this rush towards the construction of digital infrastructure. So the next couple of years are going to be very critical. And uh, here's hoping that all the pieces fit together because time is not on the side of American consumers waiting for that uh, digital opportunity. All right.
0: I know uh, we're running up against the clock here and pressed for time. Uh, any any
1: last thoughts before, uh, before we sign off? Uh, no, I think uh, you know, this is a very unique time in the digital infrastructure space. Uh, you know better than I do, having viewed uh, this market and many others as well. But uh, for the first time, I think we do have almost a universal alignment among all of the players in the internet economy about the importance of digital infrastructure. And so for me, at least, it's a very exciting time. Uh, obviously, very exciting time for me to be at Searchlight, but even more generally as an American citizen, I, who grew up in a rural area. I'm really excited about what this will mean for people who have just been waiting for a chance to participate in the digital economy. So I think the next couple of years are going to be very critical, not just for investors and for providers, but also for consumers and. Here's hoping we can get the job done as Americans to make this a better place for everybody.
0: Ah, well said. All right, Ajit, thank you for your time. Well, that was the one and the only Ajit Pai from Searchlight Capital Partners. I want to thank our audience for listening to the podcast. And please don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. That's it for this week. Don't forget to tune in next time.